And you will remember that in saying all that, we found last week, the last thing we said last week, on the question of the key to the book of Esther was this, that, that it was the sovereignty of God in a hidden way working for his people. The rabbis used to say that God was not among his people in the book of Esther. He was for his people. And it is true to say that the teaching of the book of Esther is simply this. It reveals to us that there is one realm in which God uh, works in a veiled way for his people. There is another realm in which he works in a revealed way to his people. We would define it, perhaps to the shock of some, in this way. The first realm, we would say, is the realm of Christendom, or the Christian realm. God works in that realm in a veiled way. It is all things, it is experiences of God, truly of God. But only experiences, things, teachings, doctrines, and so on. In the other, it is a realm where we are immediately and from the beginning brought into a direct relationship with the Lord himself over which he is terribly jealous. And which will mean the complete devastation of ourselves in order to bring us into a real knowledge of himself and of his purpose and of our destiny in him. That is what we call the church realm. The realm where we are truly being built up into Christ as members of his body. So the book of Esther, and I can't go back any more than that, does reveal to us that there are clearly two distinct realms uh, in uh, God's dealings with his people. We're not talking about the world, with his people. And uh, in those two realms, God uses, works, shall we say, operates on very different principles. So that we find in one realm, that is back in the land, in the city, he is getting people to divorce their foreign wives. In the other realm, he's arranging for Esther to marry an evil Gentile king. In one, uh, he is seeking to separate his people from every contaminating foreign alien influence. For the very value of their witness depends upon their separation from it. But in this other realm, we find the Lord himself blessing people who are, as, as a principle, hiding the fact that they are children of God. We have to understand that for Esther to live in, to, in the palace for years, for a few years, before she revealed the fact that she was a Jewess, meant that she more or less had to eat food that was forbidden. She had to follow customs that would have that she could not possibly have uh, had it been involved in if she was obeying the word of God, the law of God. So you see, we have these two different realms. And all I can say is this, if you want to know anything more about that, you'll have to listen to the tape uh, recording of last week. 
because we've got to go straight on this evening. We're going to cover it all tonight uh, with the outline of the book. Um, you will see on the board there straight away what the outline is. A very, very simple outline. So uh, the book of Esther falls really loosely into a division of three. Uh, at least that's how um, I have seen it. And I have put it just simply like that. The first uh, division is the sovereignty of God determining things before the event. That's the first two chapters of Esther. And then from Esther chapter 3 to chapter 5, it is the event itself, the annihilation of God's people planned and timed. And then lastly, from Esther chapter 6 to the end of this book, it is God sovereignly intervening and turning the evil into deliverance and salvation. So let us look tonight at this book of Esther. If you will turn straight away to the first chapter. I want you to keep continually, those of you who were, who were here last week and have been for these previous weeks in Ezra and Nehemiah, will you please keep continually before you all that has been said about the background and the sphere of this book. It is very, very important that we should remember that. Uh, how God reveals himself in this little book of Esther would answer a thousand and one queries that we have as to how God blesses a lot of things in the Christian realm. One of the greatest problems amongst Christian people is how can the Lord bless that? How can he use that? For instance, you take a question like this. Someone says, the Lord has shown me that you ought never to ask for money. Now, how does the Lord bless such and such an organization and such and such an organization and uses them to save other people, to bring other people to himself, and they go round from door to door collecting? Or another, perhaps they make big appeals or they advertise in some Christian magazine. And then you say, but I don't understand. If the Lord reveals to me that that's wrong, and then I should not, how does he bless that? And so you see, in our human way, we have a thousand and one queries about why the Lord blesses so many things, why he uses so many things, why he's found in so many strange uh, atmospheres and uh, societies and institutions and so on. When we read in his word what he clearly wants, and when we're walking with him, he begins to show us absolutely clearly how we should walk. You see? Well, the book of Esther is the answer to that. It's an Old Testament book, but in type, it very, very beautifully and simply and clearly gives us a bunch of keys to many, many problems that we have about Christian work and activity. Well, now let's look at the first of the, these divisions in the book of Esther. <clears throat> the sovereignty of God determining things before the event or the crisis. That is, God in his sovereignty preparing things long before the, the crisis uh, boils to a head. Long before. It is a great comfort 
to really look into uh, this uh, book and discover something of God's gracious sovereignty on behalf of his people. Well now, how we're going to do it this evening is this. First I'm going to tell you the story. We'll cover the story and cover any points that need to be cleared up. Then we will draw the lessons from the story. So now first, what is the story that we find in the first two chapters of the book of Esther? Well, it is simply this. The book of, e book of Esther, chapter 1, opens with this great conference called. You will remember that this great conference was one of the greatest conferences called uh, in that gen generation. It was a conference of all the civil and military leaders of the Persian Empire. At that time, the Persian Empire extended to 127 provinces. From all these provinces, the civil and military leaders were brought together for a conference which lasted uh, approximately six months. There was a tremendous amount of spade work to be done over those days. The purpose of the conference was to plan the great Greek expedition. Xerxes, or Hasuerus, as we know him here in the book of Esther, uh, wanted to plan uh, 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 an expedition against Greece to bring Greece itself within the orbit of the uh, Persian Empire. You will remember how all were gathered together, and I think, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, it began with a feast only for leaders. That was a big banquet. We know from history that the Persians did an awful lot of their business at banquets. It was their um, official way of doing business. Uh, the banquets lasted often two or three days, and some have been known to last a week, when you never hardly left the room, uh, except that you reclined there, eating on and off, and talking and discussing. Uh, that was the way business was done. It began with, with a feast, and then, after six months, there was a final feast, and the final feast was for all the people as well. Uh, it was not just the leaders, but evidently representatives of the people were brought in to uh, on that. I think it's the most remarkable uh, picture of the luxury and the wealth, the opulence of the Persian court that we find in this first chapter. Um, if you read it in the Revised Standard Version, um, you will find a very, very simple but wonderful picture of the Persian court. All the hangings uh, of white cotton and blue, which were the Persian royal colours, white and blue. Green, by the way, uh, as far as we can see at present, it's a word, it's a Sanskrit word, the Persian word used here in Esther. Its Hebrew meaning would be green, but uh, most scholars think that it, it much more probably means cotton because it's a Sanskrit word for cotton, carpet. And then you'll find, too, the wonderful dis description of the pillars, which, by the way, have been um, archaeologists have discovered intact, the very pillars that we're thinking about here, upon which the great awnings hung, the gold and the silver couches that they sat upon, the gold and the silver vessels that were used have been, uh, uh, some have been, uh, uh, we know from history that the Greeks captured quite a number of these things. So you see, the Bible isn't exaggerating these things. It's a very clear picture of the luxury of the Persian court. 
And then we just don't know this, this wonderful pavement of red and white and the other colors, just what it is. As uh, far as we can make out, the, the bystander version says it's their translation, mother of pearl, porphyry, and so on. But we do know that the, in the Persian Empire, uh, pavements uh, in the palace were uh, something that uh, was sought after to be the thing. So we have an amazing picture of a remarkable uh, court and indeed in some ways a somewhat remarkable king. Uh, a six-month conference beginning with a feast and ending with a feast. And it was at the final one, that is the, the feast for the people that ended and terminated the conference, that the king sent by, by his chamberlains for Queen Vashti. All he wanted to do was to appear with her crown on it. We know, of course, the record says that he was a little bit merry. But um, uh, it was quite the thing done uh, in the Persian court for the wives to be present at these banquets, at which business was discussed. And therefore it wasn't a base or a lewd thing that he was asking Vashti to do, but just simply to uh, come in for the final part of the feast, wearing her uh, crown. Uh, for some reason that we do not know, uh, Vashti refused. And, of course, that was a public affront to the king, in front of all his uh, leaders and the people as well, when the chamberlains came back and said that Queen Vashti had just, just sat down, sort of, and refused to come. Uh, it evidently must have caused a very big stir. And it is true of the character of Ahasuerus, as we know it, that he became exceedingly angry. And uh, it was not a personal matter, it was made immediately a government matter, and he put it into the hands of his statesmen. And they together, and it has been suggested that there was some friction between Vashti and the um, seven uh, leading statesmen, uh, that controlled the court, uh, they very, very swiftly um, wrote in the king's name a decree which divorced Vashti and deposed her as queen. They said, quite rightly, that if this affront uh, became known, as it obviously would throughout the whole empire, then husbands everywhere would be treated by contempt, but with contempt by their wives, and uh, that was something that they felt they'd got to nip in the bud. So uh, the decree was made, and uh, Vashti was deposed. Now, it may all seem a, a rather remarkable story, but the whole point is this, that behind all this was God. And you will then know, if you go on to uh, chapter 2, that there was a rather remarkable, and the only word we can describe it, uh, is a rather remarkable beauty competition. Uh, all the fairest and loveliest um, maidens that could be found were brought to the palace and carefully selected so that from them the king could choose his uh, new queen. What the story does not tell us is that quite some years elapsed between uh, the divorce of Vashti and the choice of Queen Esther as the new queen. 
You will also note that Esther, you remember we said last week, her name's a Persian name, it means star, very akin to the uh, name we know as Venus, and just, just meant uh, uh, the Persian good luck, uh, good fortune. Um, uh, she was considered, and the Hebrew stresses it doubly, uh, uh, she was thought to be exceedingly beautiful. She had lost her father and her mother, and she'd been brought up by the cousin Mordecai, who brought her up as his own daughter. Then you will note another remarkable thing. Mordecai, it is, we are told, was, in his family, uh, there were two names which are rather remarkable, Shimei and Kish. These evidently were either his father and his grandfather. But, as the rabbis have pointed out, um, these names always recurred and recurred in a family pedigree. And it is very likely that both the Shimei and the Kish mentioned here are the, are, are the great ancestors of Mordecai, which is rather remarkable, to say the least. Kish, of course, was the father of Saul, King Saul, and Shimei was famous for his cursing of David, the day that absolutely rebelled against him. So there again, you have a rather remarkable background. You remember that when Esther came, was selected uh, as one uh, in this uh, competition, whatever you like to call it, I don't quite know what word we can use for it. It seems awful to call it a competition, but it was a competition. And I think we've got to strip Esther of a lot of its uh, sort of Sunday school atmosphere that has grown around and see it as it really is. Um, might, I might just say that all these girls that were selected never left the king's house. They all became concubines, but only one was selected as queen. So uh, Esther was selected to be part uh, of this. And one of the things we note, really, was the the counsel of Mordecai, when he told Esther whatever she did, not to mention her kindred or her roots. The thing that he told her whatever she did, just keep quiet, which meant a lot. It meant that she had to get involved in all kinds of things that were a contradiction to God's word and God's law. Then again we see another strange thing. The keeper of the harem, or the chief of the harem, of the king's harem, immediately favoured Esther. For some reason, that we shall never know, except later, as, as being explained by the sovereignty of God, but naturally we shall never know, he favoured Esther. And, of course, it was in many ways in his hands to make or break any of those uh, girls' uh, opportunities to become queen. He so favoured Esther that he advanced her, it says. He put her very near the top. And indeed, it would almost seem by implication that uh, she was really uh, very, very greatly favoured. Uh, then, of course, you know the story. When it comes for Esther to go to the king, the king chooses Esther as queen. So there is something of the story. But these two chapters end with something else somewhat remarkable, too. They end with the story of Mordecai sitting outside the king's palace and overhearing a plot, which he 
uh, tells Esther about, and Esther in turn tells the king. The king has uh, the whole thing investigated, it is found to be true, and the men are executed. That's all that we're told at present. But you see, that is the story behind these two chapters. Now, what are the lessons that we can learn from these two chapters? The first is this. The sovereignty of God lies behind the whole scene. Here you've got worldly rulers. They are despots, absolute oriental potentates, dictators in a way that we could not do dream or conceive Men who could in a minute order the destruction of thousands upon thousands of people. That's the atmosphere. You have a court that has been and is to this day famed for its opulence, for its luxury, and for its wealth. <coughs> Seemingly everything absolutely in the iron-like hands uh, 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 of the court. Worldly affairs, worldly rulers, everything of this world, and yet, behind the whole thing, the sovereignty of God using the world like Paul, taking a man like Ahasuerus even, and using him as a pawn taking all the affairs of his, of his very government and using them to achieve his own ends. It is true, it is absolutely true, that there are world rules of darkness. But there is an even greater and more remarkable truth about human history, that behind the very darkness of human history stands God himself. And the very, the very story, the very event, of human history are being overruled and woven into the achieving and the realizing of God's own purpose. Here you have a most remarkable story. God is here sovereignly in a hidden way, but he's there. You don't find his name mentioned as such. You don't find him spoken of. You don't find him referred to or deferred to, but he's there. And this is one of the most wonderful and the most, the most remarkable fact today. And something that many of our brothers and sisters are being called upon to experience. That in some parts of the earth where this despotic thing reigns, in a reign of bloodshed and terror, they know that behind it all is the sovereignty of God, who can use them like Paul to achieve his own end. They think that they are contradicting God. They think they're destroying the work of God. But in the end, they will be found to have served God's counsels and his ends. That is a remarkable thing that is clearly revealed here in the book of Esther. Then another lesson that we learn is this. Long before the event takes place, long before the crisis uh, boils up, we find the Lord counteracts counteracting, planning his counteraction, planning his deliverance of his own. You see, you take this, uh, this divorce of Vashti, 
do we believe the Lord's in divorce? Well, of course, most of us would immediately say no, but this was one divorce the Lord was in. This was no mistake, believe you me. Whatever you might think about divorce, this particular divorce, the Lord engineered. If Vashti had not been divorced, there would have been no Esther, there would have been no deliverance of the people of God. They would have been wiped out, man, woman, and child. You see what the Lord is doing? Now here, some will have great questions of, uh, shall we say, reverently on the morality of God. How does he do something that he reveals is manifestly wrong? Well, that's a problem you'll have to solve. I'm not going to talk about that. But I'm going to state the fact that if the Lord had not engineered the divorce and the deposition of Vashti, there would have been absolutely no answer in the coming days. Years before it took place, years before the crisis boiled up, the Lord, as it were, deposed Vashti. I wonder what, what exactly it was, if I may use a rather crude colloquial expression, that bit uh, Vashti that day that she was asked to appear before uh, the king and his leaders. Something. It may, as so often is the case, small things lead to big issues. It may have been a very, very small thing. But there was some reason why she just suddenly decided she was not going to go in. But whatever it was, the Lord was behind it. So, you see, there's something remarkable. But uh, I might say that Esther's selection is a remarkable thing. That a Jewess could be selected. Uh, it'd be hidden. And, and, and she'd be selected. It was a miracle. But I think it was even more remarkable the way the Lord as it were, influence the chief of the harem. Is the Lord for harems? I don't think so somehow. And yet here we find the Lord working on the leader, the chief, of an oriental harem. And furthermore, he so works and influences him that he favors Esther. And if you read the story with an unbiased and unprejudiced mind, you will find that he had a lot to do in Esther's being chosen. You remember a very remarkable little thing. They were allowed to take anything. They went in the evening, you see, and came back in the morning. And they were allowed to take anything they wanted when they went to the king. Esther is a remarkable thing. It says, Esther took nothing. She left it to the chief of the harem. He told her what to take. That may seem a small thing, but the advancement of Esther by that man was again due to the sovereignty of God. You see, Esther might have wondered what it was all about. I mean, the fact that she had been selected to be in this competition, as it were, uh, and whatever happened, she would have been a concubine of uh, the king for the rest of her life. Uh, she might have wondered, what on earth was it all about? Why, why, why? She had no idea of the uh, crisis that was some years uh, ahead in the future. You see? No idea at all. So we find again the amazing sovereignty of God bringing a Jewess to be queen of the Persian Empire. Now, we spoke last week of some of the difficulties that we had historically over this particular portion of the Word of God. 
but we are this night uh, standing firmly upon the word of God itself, even if it opposes history as we have it. And one thing we can say here is, is simply this. We know from history that no woman was ever chosen to be queen to the Persian king who did not belong to the seven chief <coughs> Persian families of the nation. That she should have been selected and uh, chosen to be queen was a miracle in itself. And far greater the miracle that she was a Jewess. So, there you are. You ask me what God can do when his people go into exile and you find them under the heel of an evil, heathen, uh, Gentile nation. What does he do? He raises up one of his own people to be queen of the whole thing. That's the sovereignty of God. Oh, you'll have many questions about it. How the Lord could possibly have allied her to a man like Ahasuerus. How he could have possibly allowed her to be involved with all the court of the day and everything else and be a child of God is something that we might well scratch our heads over and ask many questions about. See? But the whole point is this. The sovereignty of God is expressed in the book of Esther by the way that a Jewess becomes queen of the whole empire. Well, there we are. I might also say that the sovereignty of God was in Mordecai's discovery of that plot. What a remarkable thing that was, that he should just have been there and overheard those two eunuchs, those two chamberlains, discussing together in their anger what they were going to do to King Ahasuerus. What a remarkable thing. Oh, we might say it was just a little incident. Mordecai, I told Esther, Esther told the king. The king immediately started an investigation. It ended in finding that the matter was true. The two men were executed. That ended that plot very swiftly. Actually, Ahasuerus was assassinated. That was how he ended his life. But that plot of assassination ended. But the remarkable thing is this. You see, this was the sovereignty of God again. For later on in the story, the king couldn't sleep one night. And he asked for the records to be read. And they dug up some of the records. How on earth they ever dug up these? There you are. Again, the sovereignty of God. And when they were reading the records, they suddenly discovered this man, a man called Mordecai, had saved the king's life some years previously. You remember what happened? The king said, what has been known to Mordecai? I, I, I don't think, it, I can't remember the name of anything. Well, they said, nothing's been done to Mordecai. Goodness, he said, we must do something straight away. <clears throat> but you see, the sovereignty of God. And the point at which the king discovered that nothing had been done to Mordecai was the point at which Mordecai, and he did not know it, but Mordecai was at his greatest danger. Gallows were actually being built the night the king couldn't sleep. Fifty cubits high, of course, there would be another problem. They were 70 to 90 feet high, those gallows, were being built. All through the night the work went on on those gallows. And the king couldn't sleep. Not because he could hear what was going on, but for another reason. But the whole point was, do you see the sovereignty of God in every single step? Mordecai didn't know. Esther didn't know. Far less Ahasuerus or any of his statesmen or court. None of them knew. They were all being brought here, put there, woven together by a hand behind, a hidden hand 
but as yet they did not see. You see? Now that's the sovereignty of God working in a most remarkable way behind the scenes. I want you also to note another lesson from these two chapters, connected with these other two. And that is, if, the, if God in his sovereignty is behind world events, and behind world rulers, whatever they are, we can't get beyond God. Uh, and if, in his foreknowledge, he is planning his counteraction long before the event takes place, another thing that we ought to note is this, that God, we, that God's sovereignty works because of his grace. We can call it sovereign grace in the foreknowledge of God. What do we mean by that? We mean by this, God is working in his grace for his people, in his foreknowledge, in spite of their condition and their compromise. We would have said the Lord should have left these people. We should have said there's no business to be there. They should have been back in the land. They should have been back in the city of God. They've got no business to be there in exile. But you see, although the Lord knows their compromise, although the Lord knows that they wouldn't leave uh, the exile and go back to where they should be, Although he knows that they're right out of his purpose in that sense, as far as the coming of the Messiah is concerned, yet he works in his grace for them. Now that's another wonderful thing. You see, we often can't understand why the Lord works in the remarkable way he does in the Christian realm. How he saves people, how he blesses them, how he uses things, the experiences of deliverance and the provision that he gives in the Christian realm, in all kinds of things that we would consider to be wrong, foundationally wrong in some cases. And yet there you are. You find the Lord. Why is it you find the Lord? You find the Lord in his sovereign grace. There, in spite of the compromise, in spite of the condition, whenever there's a soul that cries out to him, there's his own child, there. There's something that we ought to take note of from this book of Esther. And then I want you also to note following from that, that here we, we are taught God uses things, he takes hold of things, he plans things, that he, he would never touch in the land. He would never touch it. Listen, supposing the folk in the land, back in the promised land, had been in terrible need, do you think he would have taken one of those uh, men at a foreign wife and used them? Oh, right. The Lord was spending all his time and energy divorcing them to Ezra and Nehemiah. You know the trouble they had to get breakup of, of families try and wipe out that trouble, you see? But here, it, we find the Lord using the very thing he's condemning. In the land, he's condemning it. And he's condemning it in no uncertain terms. And in very severe and harsh terms. He's dealing with it. But here, he's arranging it. He's using it. He's taking hold of the very thing he condemns. Now, do you see? <laughs> you can't involve yourself in anything that's being blessed. In, in, in what we call the Christian realm. Just because it's being blessed, it doesn't mean to say it's right. God blesses a tremendous 
number of things that are compromised in different aspects. But he blesses them. There you are. From this week we are taught simply this. The Lord works for his people just because they are his own. Just because they are his own. He will not forsake them, he will not leave them. So here we have this remarkable opening, really, chapters of the book of Esther. It, it, it runs right through the whole book. God really working for them. Don't you think that's rather remarkable? I think that's a tremendous uh, uh, corrective to our confused, muddled thinking about the Lord's people today, you see. Which we've got the same here. Now then, what about the next bigger uh, section of, of Esther? You find that is all concerned with the event, the actual event itself. We've been dealing with uh, things before the event, it's with the, the sovereignty of God working toward it. Now we have the event itself relating. And what is the event? It is the complete annihilation of the people of God. Man, woman, and child, we're told. The decree is made that every man, woman, and child should be destroyed of the Jewish people. What is the story? in these chapters from 3 to 5, very simply. We find a man called Haman the Agagite. Now listen, listen, listen. Haman the Agagite. Who was Haman the Agagite? Well, evidently, somehow or other, he's related to the Agags that we know of that, do you remember, Samuel hewed to pieces. Because Saul refused to take action, Samuel was angry, do you remember? And the kingdom was taken from Saul in the finish over that. Do you remember? Now, isn't it strange? Mordecai is linked with King. He's linked with Saul. And on the other side, you've got Haman, and he's linked back in history with Agag. Isn't it strange? And then you'll find some other rather remarkable thing. This Haman is the king's favorite. Another somewhat remarkable thing, we might say. Uh, Mordecai, and we don't know why, Mordecai refused to bow down to him. Now, no one knows why Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Because one thing that we don't find in the uh, Old Testament is any uh, restriction upon showing deference and respect to superiors. So we have no idea why Mordecai refused, except that evidently he felt it was something to do with his being a Jew, which is all the more remarkable when we consider that Mordecai had told Esther to keep quiet. So here we have a little problem. Why Mordecai didn't save an awful lot of trouble and just simply bow his head uh, and slightly bow his body um, as Haman went by? But he didn't, and that was the beginning of the trouble. It was reported uh, to Haman. First of all, of course, it, Mordecai was asked. Mordecai gave the reply that he was a Jew. So the servants went and told Haman, and Haman noted it the next time and was exceedingly angry. But being a vindictive man, he said he would not take it out on Mordecai only, but he would destroy the whole race of which Mordecai was a member. So we have the plot to destroy the Jews, a remarkable plot. They start to cast lots. It's no haphazard thing. They cast lots. By divination, they come after many, many months to the point where they know that it's to be a certain date. It's to be the the, the 13th day of the 12th month. They found that out by casting lots, by divination. When Haman knew the date, 
He went to the king. It was something like, I suppose, on about nine months hence, and uh, laid the plan before the king. He persuaded the king to take action, saying that these people were dangerous, and the decree was made. Now, that was the masterstroke of the devil. Because a decree made by the Persian court was irrevocable. It was one of the, the strongest, most stern things about the authority of the Persian court that any decree, any royal decree, was absolutely irrevocable. So the decree was made. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, every man or woman who wanted to get rid of the Jews was absolutely given the right to do so. So that that day there would be a bloodbath throughout the whole length and breadth of the Persian Empire. The reaction of Mordecai is interesting. For the first time, we see, although it's not mentioned actually by word, that he prayed. It says he went out into the city and, and cried with a bitter cry. That's evidently fasting, that cloth and ashes. And so did many of the other Jews throughout the land. Esther becomes exceedingly concerned. She sends to him some clothes. She doesn't like to see him uh, evidently in that condition. But he sends them back. The result is she sends a message to us what on earth is wrong with him. He sends back to her word. What is wrong? She then says, well, I can't do anything about it. Evidently, she felt she'd just fallen a little out of favor. Because she says, for 30 days, I haven't seen the king. And I'm just wondering whether it would be more than I liked for her to stand before him. Now, she was a clever woman, Esther. Because, you see, she had a right to ask for an audience. But if she'd asked for an audience and it had been refused, she couldn't ever mention that matter again without losing her life. And she knew that. So, when the word came back from Mordecai, how do you know that you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And do you not realize that if this does happen, you will also lose your life? It is a law of the Persians and the Medes. It's got to be carried out. It will go right up to the top of the land and right down to the lower strata of society. And then we get those wonderful words of Esther that she said, all right then, I'll go with. I perish, I perish, but I'll go with. But you, you, you spend three days fasting in prayer, and <coughs> I'll, and the girls here will spend uh, three days in fasting and in prayer. So they all wept and waited on the Lord for three days. You know the story. Esther went in, we read it tonight. Esther went in, and in a very wonderful way, the golden scepter was held out to her. She got her. Now, Esther was a very clever woman, I might say. She was not only a very beautiful woman, but she comes out, she's revealed in the story as a very, very clever woman. She didn't ask straight away, which I think was a very wise thing on her part. She said, would they like to come to a meal? You know the story? They came to the meal, and uh, you know Esther's success. Now, what are the lessons we learn from this part of the story, very simply? We learn this. We learn, first of all, Satan's bitter hatred. Now, I want you to understand this. Satan's bitter hatred of all God's people. Even when they are not where they should be. Even when they're compromised. 
Now, do not make any mistake about this. Satan hates the seed of God. He hates the seed of God. Many Christians make a terrible mistake when they think of going back into the world. Everything is rosy, everything is beautiful, everything looks wonderful when you go back into the world. I have not known a backslider who has not had moments of real joy and gaiety when they've gone back into the world at the beginning. But then suddenly, when they are absolutely changed in the world, the devil reveals himself for what he is. And they lose everything that they ever had. They lose their health, they lose their mind, they lose their peace, they lose everything. Oh, if only the people of God would realize that once born of God, Satan will never rest till he's destroyed what he's got. You see, you, you mustn't think that the devil's breathing sweet little things into your ears and say, come on, my son, I'll give you a good time. You come with me. Um, I want you. I want you. I thank you. You come with me, you'll have a good time. No more going against the current. No more of the, that awful uh, trouble. No more of the pressure of the Christian life. No more of the swearing nature. You just come with me. I'll give you a wonderful time. You just go with him, and you'll have a wonderful time for a season. The devil will see to that. Give you a wonderful time for a while. You'll have all whatever you want to. And then you will discover that you are manacled. You are absolutely shackled in a way that you were never shackled before. And you will discover that you are in the presence of the most insidious and the most violent hate. Malice, the only word to describe it. It's not God. Oh, the devil breathes it into your heart when you're in such a position that this is God's anger. But it's not God at all. You are in the presence of someone who, who is out to destroy your very body because he can't destroy what is of God. That's what, that's what Paul meant when he said he delivered two people over for the, to Satan for the destruction of their body. Do you see Satan will be able to do pleased to destroy their body. He can't touch the seed of God. But oh, how cruel he'll torture and he'll torture and he'll torture the child of God. Now, if you want any proof of that, oh, if only some of you could go see some backsliders, real backsliders, people who've really been born of God. You see them years after they've gone back and see what it's done to them. See the incredible mark. Now, why? You would have thought that going back into the world, the devil would just love it. You would have thought he would have patted you on the back and given you a good. Don't, don't you deceive yourself. There is something in you that's born of God, and Satan hates it, and he hates you. He hates you. You step out of Christ. You step out because you'll have a wonderful time for a while. And then you'll discover that you're absolutely in a place of unbelievable burning. Oh, people don't believe these things. They don't believe them. Lord wrestles with them. He, he pleads with them. He, he, he beseeches them to, to come to an understanding, but they, they, they see all the other side of it until too late. And then, when it's too late, they are right back. Oh, yes. Do you think Satan loves God? Think again. 
you go home and desire to have good. And does Satan love God? And then ask yourself another question. Does Satan love what is born of God? And then you've got your answer to what would happen to you or to me if we step into his hands. He will destroy us. Destroy. And he will destroy us not swiftly, but unbelievably slowly. So that's what we find here. You will note here something else. That Satan not only hates the people who are walking in Christ and hates those that fall away from Christ or those who are not in church. And I mean, I believe that Satan hates those who have abandoned themselves to the Lord on certain grounds. But he hates those who are not on that ground. That explains an awful lot of satanic conflict that many places and organizations have. He hates anything that has anything of Christ. But I want to say something else to this. Satan's plans are never haphazard. They are always planned and timed. You think you're walking into something? You think you're doing something? You think you're yielding to some coincidental temptation? You are doing nothing of the kind. The whole thing is a carefully laid plan. It might go back years, but it's a, a plan that's been laid, and it's a plan that's been timed. I have never yet known any person really fallen, and fallen in a way that meant backsliding, that it's not been at a point where it's planned and timed. The exact point of time, and carefully planned years before. The devil never lays coincidental plans. They're not just haphazard. Not haphazard. Devil's plans are carefully laid and planned. Carefully timed. Just like this. Just like this plot. I want you also to note this. The anguish and the travail are not so much over the Lord's name and over the Lord's honor and purpose. You remember Mordecai went out and wept with a bitter cry and so did all the Jews throughout the, the empire. But I want to ask you a question. Was there anguish and travail over the name of the Lord or the purpose of the Lord or the honor of the Lord or the glory of the Lord? I am sorry I have to answer, but it did not. Their bitter cry was that they were going to die. Now that reveals something that is only too common in that realm. It is all I and we. There is a realm of Christianity in which everything is judged on what you get. If you don't get enough here, you go where you do get enough. Do you understand what I mean? You can leave anything if you don't get enough there and go somewhere where you get more. Everything's what you get, what you get. You judge everything by what you get. Whether you are satisfied, whether you are getting something, whether you are contented, whether you get fellowship, whether you are happy, whether everything suits you. See? That kind of spirit. Well, I'm afraid it's here. The thing that stirred these people up to cry to the Lord was not the Lord's name and honor and glory or purpose. It was simply that they were, there was a day point when they were going to die. Well, anyone would cry to the Lord in such circumstances, I might say. I'm not being unkind. Mordecai is a great man. So is Esther, a great woman of God. But we've got to see clearly that here we don't find them praying for any other reason than the fact that they're driven to unto their knees in prayer because they're going to die. Their anguish, their travail, is a result 
simply of that. Shall I might say that we learn something else that in God's sovereign grace he has those at such a time who are there appointed by him and who are comparatively faithful. If we were to compare Esther with Nehemiah and Ezra and others we would say well these are nothing. But you see comparatively speaking they are the faithful in exile. And the Lord always has such a point for great trial for his people. Church history history of the people of God down to the generations is marked by this kind of thing. Some tragedy has taken place, some terrible thing looming up, and a handful of comparatively faithful people. In their day and generation, they were the most faithful in those conditions and in that atmosphere. Gave themselves to the Lord, abandoned themselves to the Lord. And then what happened? You find another page of Christian history is written. A tremendous deliverance of God. That's just like church history, all over Christian history, times again and again. So, you see, here we, we note a lot of things, and we note also on this question of this event, the annihilation of God's people, planned, timed, we learn this very simple thing, that the Lord waits in his sovereignty, although he is sovereign, he waits until his people are reduced to crying to him. Now this is an amazing thing. If you read Psalm 107, you will find that although God is absolutely sovereign and could deliver his people, he never does. He waits until they are reduced to crying to him. When they cry, he hears their cry and lifts them up. Isn't that a remarkable thing? If you read Psalm 107 in the light of Esther, you will be very surprised, I, I feel, uh, to find how the Lord deals with his own. He reduces them to the point of utter need to they cry out from the depths of their heart. Well, those are lessons that we have learned uh, here. I think we'll leave it somehow uh, and uh, take the last portion next week, and then finish the whole historical section by looking back over it all. But we, we want just to simply learn from these two great uh, divisions of Esther. God in his sovereignty, working for his people long before the events take place. Long before. Next week we shall see how the Lord actually intervenes when the event is about to take place. And we shall discover some very wonderful things. We shall discover how the Lord takes the very things, the very things that Satan is using to destroy, with the design of destroying the people, he uses those very things to destroy the enemy. Gallows are being built, who hangs on the gallows? The man who built them. So that's just like God in sin. Sin, who will be destroyed by sin? Yes, the devil himself. In the end. Sin will have destroyed. 
and the Lord by becoming sin has saved us. It's amazing things. The sovereignty of God. Behind things. Planning towards things. And then when they are about to take place in the deep. The Lord is ne- it's a wonderfully comforting thing that the Lord is never, ever taken by surprise. Have you ever thought of that? Or think about it again. The Lord is never taken by surprise. Isn't that wonderful? There's not a thing that the Lord doesn't know is about to happen, and there's not a thing that he hasn't planned. You may be on the right ground, you may be not on the right ground. But if you cry to the Lord, you find the Lord for all provision there, planned, ready, prepared. Waiting. That's really something of the story so far of the book of Esther. If there's anyone being tempted by the enemy to go back into the world, take note of what I've said. Because what I've said is not just uh, uh, theological or theoretical. It comes from real experience in some measure. And from observation, even more from observation of what has happened in so many others. We are hated. That's why things are so difficult. We are hated. Never think that by getting out of the sphere of the church that you will be less hated. You will have only jumped, as it were, out of the frying pan into the fast. That's all. Into a place where you stand to lose everything but your soul. There are some words I thought I'd read to you, words that are nearly always quoted when it comes to the book of Esther. I don't know why, because they weren't actually written on the book of Esther, but uh, they're words that always, nearly everywhere, are written. I thought this evening I would read them to you and leave this as the closing thought of this evening. Careless seems the great avenger, History's pages but record one death's grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the world. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Shall we pray together?